You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 40. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. It's Thursday, which means there's a new Lively Show long-form episode for you today. In this episode, I'm speaking with Laura Casey of laracasey.com. She's the editor in chief of Southern Weddings Magazine, and she's a force behind Making Things Happen, the conference and movement that you can find more about on makingthingshappen.com. Laura does a whole lot of stuff besides that. She has a shop and many other consulting and branding things as well. If you'd like to find out all that Laura does, I really suggest that you go over to laracasey.com to find out more. In today's episode, we are going to talk to Lara about her life story because this one is fascinating. There's so many twists and turns, high points and low points, and it really, throughout the whole journey, she has so many nuggets of wisdom, really, to share from the lessons that she's learned. In this episode, we're going to talk to Lara about her Broadway career and why she transitioned away from it very early on. We're going to talk about Lara's decision to leave New York with her fiance to help her parents after Hurricane Ivan. We're going to discuss the lessons and blessings that Lara learned from the end of her first marriage. We're going to talk about the challenges she faced actually in her current marriage early on as well and how they were resolved over time. And we're going to go into the Southern Wedding's journey and talk about the challenges and almost deal-breaking hardships that almost killed the magazine despite its huge success. For those who know Laura, you know that she's a very faith-driven person, so that does come up throughout the show. But regardless of your faith, I do think her story transcends and is an incredible journey. I got chills through most of the episode listening to her tell this story, so I'm so excited to present Laura Casey. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Laura. Oh, thank you for having me. I am really excited. Yeah. Okay. So let's get started talking about your story and how you got to where you are. So where do we begin with the Lara Casey story? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, I will start with um, college. I have a degree, a very practical degree in music theater. <laughs> <laughs> um, I say that in jest, but it actually has served me very well because I think that God has really shown me that my heart is in storytelling and in helping people live lives that matter, um, helping them live on purpose. And one way that I feel like he's allowed me to help people do that is through really great storytelling, whether that's through writing, through um, Southern Weddings, through telling beautiful love stories through that platform. So I have a degree in music theater. And when I graduated from school, I moved to New York City to pursue acting. (laughs) (laughs) And I quickly fell out of love with the business of the business. I loved performing. Like I loved being on stage. I loved diving into the heart of someone and understanding who they are and why they do what they do. But I really hated the business. I just hated feeling like I was selling myself all the time. And for me, college was also a big struggle. I went through a battle with anorexia. And, you know, I say it was anorexia because that's what it was defined as. But really, it was a battle for control. I couldn't control my life. Exactly. I was going to just yeah. ask. I just actually just had <laughs> Lauren Lax on for this last week. Her story is she had a 14-year battle. She almost lost in her 20s. And, and it, yeah, it comes down to control. What were you trying to control? So I think that there are, there are so many things that we go through in those crazy years of our lives of trying to figure out how to navigate the pressure of college, how to navigate 
knowing what we're supposed to do with our entire lives, which is in my mind, almost an impossibility at that age anyway. Um, little did I know I would go through four career changes after that. <laughs> I always say we're not supposed to know the end because if we did, it steals all of the power and presence we can ever give to this moment, which is going to be the bridge to the next one. So if we knew it was on the other side of the bridge, we would never actually be able to cross it because it would be too distracted and not actually do the work. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And all of those life experiences, it wasn't like they were meaningless at all. Going through that really intense battle with control and with, you know, using food as the thing I was trying to control and exercise and so many things that I was restricting in my life. And then moving through to moving to New York, like I said, and trying to figure out what in the world I was going to do with this degree that my parents had so graciously spent a lot of money on, paid for my college education, which was a huge blessing. I felt a ton of pressure, which I think anybody, regardless of the circumstances, feels like at that stage of life. And you're sitting here thinking you need to be a Broadway superstar. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I I don't say this to brag or anything. I was really good at it and I loved it. But sometimes when you're really good at something, it doesn't always mean that you need to make a life of it. It might mean that you'll be able to use those skills in a totally different way than you ever imagined, which is sort of where my story went. I love that. (laughs) So actually, I graduated, like I said, moved to New York and just really fell out of love with the business of the business. And so I walked into my agent's office one day. It was a really smoky office, which is such an amazing (laughs) picture of what my life felt like at the time, just smoky and clouded. And I walked in and I said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't even remember the words I said, to be honest. All I know is that I said the words and I walked out and it was like I could breathe and it was clear air again. So I had no plan. And I learned in that that sometimes God closes a door or has us close a door so that another one can be opened. They don't usually happen simultaneously. Yeah, I say it's like an acrobat and you have to let go of the one bar in order to catch the other. Yeah, absolutely. That is so true. And so I walked out of there and then got really depressed, went through about six months of pretty bad depression where I didn't really want to leave my apartment. And I was using food again to appease my emotions. And this time I was really overeating and just trying to find any source of comfort I could. I ended up gaining 50 pounds in six months, which was quite a lot of weight. (laughs) I actually did the same thing underweight and then over. Yeah, I did the flip flop. So here's a question. So you leave this smoky office and you're relieved, but then you're depressed at the same time. You would think that that would have kind of almost been the reverse. Why do you think it wasn't? It's funny. It was a relief to not have the pressure of feeling like I was in the wrong skin and in the wrong life circumstances. However, sometimes a clean slate and an open door is really scary. (laughs) And I had no idea what to do with my life. Because like I said, here I had this degree. I didn't have any training in anything else. All these people at home were thinking that I was going to be a superstar on Broadway. And that just wasn't where my heart was. So my identity, the idea of this identity, that box that I had put myself in, was kind of crushed at that moment. So that's why the eating came in. And that's why that kind of spiraled. Yeah, definitely. I just, I didn't know where to turn. And also here I was living in the city of millions of people, but sometimes living in a big city like that with millions of people can feel so isolating and makes you feel like you're so alone. And that's where I was. I didn't have any friends who were 
making those same big risks or taking those same big risks that I was to transition out of something so quickly after college. The only thing that I knew after, you know, feeling that depression for so long, and it was the dead of winter. It was so cold, <laughs> figuratively and literally. It was just so cold. I knew that I had to put myself back together. And the only thing that I knew how to do was somehow physically energize myself. I had been a dancer for so long in college. And so I decided to join a gym. And I thought, okay, if anything, I'm just going to try to get myself physically healthy again. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. But I walked into a gym and I would go really late at night in my biggest, baggiest clothes so that nobody would see me, or at least I'd hoped nobody would see me. And I started working out and I started to feel a tiny bit better. It wasn't like it was a magical overnight change. But there was one night where I was working out at like 10 p.m. And I saw this trainer working with a client. And then I started to notice every time I went back to the gym, this trainer was working with clients. And the clients would come in looking much like I did. They looked dejected and just really depressed. Their body language said that they were, you know, they were just not present in their lives. At the end of the sessions, though, it was completely different. They would walk away from those sessions looking like they had been, I don't know, drinking magic happy potion or something. <laughs> so you just like watch them through the, the, the whole session? Yeah. <laughs> and I would just be like, what in the world? You know? And I said, I want that. I need that. I need to feel that life again. I need to feel alive. And I remember one lady even like singing as she left her session. I was like, okay, <laughs> I got to talk to this guy. <laughs> Whatever he's feeding them, I want it supersized. And so I I talked to him and I I didn't have any money. You know, I was I had all this debt from living in New York with no job at the time. I think I waited tables for a little while. So I put 10 sessions on my credit card. It was the only thing I knew how to do. Don't recommend doing that, but that's what I did. <laughs> and I started working with him. His name was Ray Dashiel, and he changed my life. He made me believe that I was capable of anything. And I don't say that in like a capable of my dreams type of way, but I was capable of more than I thought I was. I remember my very first session with him, he put a 45 or 35 pound empty bar on my shoulders and he showed me how to do a very slow and controlled squat. So I did it and I was like, okay, I can totally do this. And then he showed me, you know, how to do it in a more correct form and my legs started shaking. I was like, oh boy, <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to put 10 pound weights on each side. And I said, oh, no way. No way, Ray. I cannot do that. And he looked me dead in the eyes and it was like he cut right through my heart, just like the steel that was on my shoulders. And he said, Laura, decide that you can. And I thought... Hmm. decide that I can. Okay. That's got to be a bumper sticker. Yeah, exactly. It really <laughs> should be. But somehow his faith in me and his belief in me at that moment actually made me believe that I could. It wasn't you know, about him specifically. It was just about crushing this identity box that I had held for so long. I thought that, and this is just what was in my brain, honestly, I thought that weightlifting was for guys only and that there was no way that I was going to be strong enough. People in college told me I was sensitive. And so in my mind, that made me believe that I wasn't strong. And that strength, did that also transcend to other areas of your life too, ironically? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's really where the transformation started to come from is the deciding that I could. And I, I just kind of latched onto that idea and I thought, wow, that's exactly what I want to do for other people. 
I want to help them find that honest, authentic, true strength in themselves, um, or maybe uncover it for the very first time. And so he actually encouraged me to become a personal trainer after a few months of working with him. And that's what I did. I became a personal trainer in New York, and um, I loved it. It really just it really brought together all the things that I wanted to do for people. I wanted to help people one-on-one. I wanted to, just like I had done in theater, get to know them like at the heart, at the core, get to know why they do what they do in order to help them transform in the best way possible. So that's in a nutshell, my time in New York. I'll fast forward now the rest of the story. So I became a personal trainer and then I actually met another trainer and we quickly got engaged And we were set to be married that New Year's Eve at my parents' house in Florida. And this was in 2004. And I think I'm getting the dates right. I think it was 2004. In that September, three months before we were to be married on New Year's Eve, um, Hurricane Ivan hit my house in Florida, my parents' house. And for any of you that are listening that have ever been through a natural disaster, you know what that was like. It was, I mean, it was devastating. And I remember pulling up to my parents' house and being able to see right through their house. I mean, they certainly didn't lose everything. A lot, a lot of people were much worse off, but it was still very devastating for my family. So my fiancé and I decided to leave our high-rise apartment in New York and this life of training people that we felt was you know, very worthy of being there for. We loved our clients. We loved the good work we were doing. But I knew I needed to leave and be there to help my family. So we left everything and moved in with my parents, which was very humbling. There were no jobs. There were no places to live. There was just this unshakable feeling that we were supposed to be there. So what were you doing to help them? We were literally helping put the house back together. We were scrubbing seaweed off of the walls and, gosh, um, putting toilets back together, putting doorknobs back on we were planning to be married at my parents' house. And that was part of the motivation too, was to help them put their lives back together. And for some reason, no one ever considered canceling the wedding. Oh, so this was planned before the hurricane. Yeah, exactly. The wedding became more about a community wanting to come together to celebrate something, just anything that they could, than it did about us. And so we gosh, we, like I said, you know, showered outside in our bathing suits in the only working hose. And I remember a water snake slithering by one day and I was like, I can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) But something was happening during that time to me personally. I really coped during that time through creativity. This was back way back before Pinterest and blogs and all this stuff. In fact, I think there was only one blog at the time, wedding blog, and it was Faye and Greer for anyone that's been around a long time in wedding blogs. And I coped through creativity. I made my ceremony programs. I made the aisle runner. I designed the flowers. Like I did anything I could to try to keep my mind off of the devastation all around us and really focus on celebrating the relationships that we had with our family and friends that were going to be there. So it was a weird time. Here we were like in this rubble and trying to plan a wedding and having all our friends help us put the house back together. And as you can imagine, it was just a very strange time. We're living with my parents, not having any jobs. So my relationship with my fiance was not stellar at the time. We were just kind of going day by day. 
And so we got married on New Year's Eve and it was a wonderful celebration of hope. It was beautiful. I definitely caught the wedding bug at that time (laughs) and really fell in love with the idea of helping people create celebrations that could potentially change people's lives and transport them out of the mire and the muck of either everyday life or a tragedy like that, even if it's just for a night and help give them hope. I didn't realize that was possible with things like that. And it brought back all of the things that I had done in theater. It was storytelling and using light and sound and texture and creativity to tell a love story. So it really was a marriage, not just of the two of us, but a marriage of all of these things that I loved coming together. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was amazing. And then shortly after that, two weeks later, we were on our honeymoon. We actually came back early from our honeymoon, which is a whole other story. But we came back and we were all in my parents' bedroom and my mom got a phone call and it was a doctor and my brother actually had been working at the ski resort in Vail and he was skiing after hours and had skied right off of a service road, which is essentially a cliff, and he had cracked his spinal cord. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I don't even honestly remember much of that night. All I remember is getting on a plane with my mom and I don't know how in the world we got through security. I'm sure we were crying and maybe even emotionless. It was just so shocking. And we didn't know if my brother was going to make it through the night um, because he went into emergency surgery. So here my mom and I are just trying to keep it together. And we walk into the hospital in Denver and it was a spinal cord rehab center called Craig, which I'm mentioning because I'm so grateful for them. Ugh, now I'm going to get choked up. And we walk through the intensive care unit. And if you've ever been in an intensive care unit, you know that there are clear glass pane windows as you walk down the hallway. And you never want to turn and see the person that you love there. You just never want it to be yours. And so I just remember walking down the hallway. Ugh, I even remember the shoes I was wearing. I was wearing those old classic Ugg boots, you know, um, when they first came <laughs> out and... Uh, and I remember turning and then seeing my little brother there, Stephen, and he was puffy from surgery. He was alive, thank God. But the doctors said that he would likely never walk again. And my brother, like I said, was a rock climber. He was active. He was a skier. Like that was his whole life. He was very young. He's four years younger than me. So I think at the time he was, oh goodness, maybe 20 or 19. So all these things, us leaving New York, the hurricane, me leaving a career that I was supposed to do, even though I had a great career in personal training, um, it was still devastating for my parents, all this transition. And then my brother's accident. Yeah. So what's the time period between all of this? Um, Me leaving theater was, my fiance and I were engaged for about a year and a half. So it's, that doesn't seem like it was, it, it was about, yeah, it was about a year and a half, I guess. So it was a very short time, but then the hurricane and my brother's accident, that was within a four-month time span. So it was a lot. Um, And here my parents were, most of their money was gone from the hurricane and then paying from our wedding and so many things. And my brother's medical bills were $25,000 a day. A day? Yes. Absolutely crazy. Insurance doesn't help with that? That's insane. It did for a little bit, but most of it, it did not. And my brother had to end up writing a letter to them to ask for it to be abated, which thankfully they granted after I think the bills hit like several hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it was just terrible. Just so much stuff. So 
long story short, as you can imagine, um, our marriage really suffered here. We were only married for like a few weeks, but it started to quickly crumble. And unfortunately things deteriorated quickly, fast. And we realized that we didn't have a firm foundation in our marriage. We really didn't have God in our lives to keep us anchored. We actually ended up getting divorced after just a few months of marriage, which again, another blow. It was just such a sad time for my parents. Here's a question, and this I ask with all the love in my heart. Do you think you knew ahead of time not to make that decision, or did it become clear after the decision was made? Definitely became clear after. I think that had there been any hesitation or anything, I certainly wouldn't have known it with all the tragedies that were happening. And I know too, and you know, I actually I have a book that's coming out in December called Make It Happen, and I share a little bit of that story in there too, but something I did share in there, which was the hardest paragraph for me to write in the whole book was the words I just told you, which was about our divorce. But mostly it is in retrospect, knowing that it was my youth and my selfishness that caused that. You know, I won't go into too much detail, but it really was me and just not having that firm foundation. I don't think it was at all by God's hand that our marriage deteriorated. It was definitely me. So what do you think the blessing was in that relationship? Um, I mean, so many blessings. I think in all of the mistakes that I've made in my life and in the failures, those have been the best blessings because they've taught me about my need for God. They've taught me about the fact that I'm not perfect, that I'm capable of making huge (laughs) mistakes and that I, yeah, that I am not in control. And that really the goal of life is to surrender control so that we don't get in our own way. Yeah. Get out of your own way. Exactly. So it's kind of like the same lesson from the anorexia earlier played out in a totally different sphere, but teaching the same lesson in a new form. Yeah, it's really hard because I think it's it's very, um, I'm not sure what, what word to use here, but it's very trendy or popular to have no regrets in life. Um, <laughs> I guess you're right. You're right. You know, but I do regret that. I regret that mistake. I regret that that marriage didn't work because now the whole of my life is set on encouraging marriages. So I think that if anything, God used that time of just devastation and tragedy to refine my heart and to help me understand what really matters in life and to mature. So yeah, there you have it. And then I'll fast forward a little bit here too. I wasn't expecting to tell all this, but you're pulling all this out of me, Jess. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you okay? I don't want the listeners to think I'm like putting no, you in a comfortable totally place. Fine. No, it's a good thing. It's a really good thing. And I'm totally an open book. I really feel like there's nothing that I've been given that wasn't meant to be shared. So your mess becomes your message. It does. It really does. And it becomes a beautiful picture of, of grace too. Fast forward, obviously at this time in my life, everything has basically fallen apart. Yeah. Where are you after that divorce? So are you still at home? Are you still not, you're not training? Well, I was still at home and, um, which obviously was very awkward and being in a house where there was so much need. I mean, here are my sweet parents were trying to recover from the hurricane still trying to figure out how in the world they're going to survive in a community that has been financially devastated too. My dad is, was an eye surgeon at the time, ophthalmologist, and yeah, his practice really suffered too. So how are they going to support themselves and how are they going to support my brother now being in a rehab hospital for months? So very heavy time in life. And so I decided to find a therapist and I really believe in 
the importance of therapy in our lives in crazy times like that, as I went through with my battle with anorexia and with depression, both of those times, therapists had helped me really come out of that in a stronger way um, and helped me to deal with my emotions. And so I found a therapist there and he became my mentor for the next decade of really helping me to understand that um, I am not my fears and I'm not my faults. Those are things that I now know as truths that failure is not final. And he actually shared a quote from Susan Jeffers with me that kind of became a mantra in my life, which was feel the fear and do it anyway. Gosh, I love that so much. And what that meant to me though, at that time in my life was if I woke up and I felt like I couldn't put my feet on the ground and I felt like I needed to cry or I felt like I needed to ask for help. I needed to do those things instead of resist them. It's the decide you can thing all over again. Exactly. I needed to feel those things and not be afraid or ashamed. I felt so much shame and just not feel afraid of feeling because that's really what it was for me with controlling things with food, anorexia and things like that. And so many things was trying to mask my feelings if I was anxious or overwhelmed and didn't know what to do with myself, I resorted to food for that. And so I had to learn over you know, several challenging months and like really getting deep into therapy. And also at that time, started studying the Bible and realized that there was so much truth there um, and practical wisdom for living. Anyway, long story short, I ended up get, taking another job. I took a job at the local gym, which was also very humbling. <laughs> and took a job at the local gym just to pay my bills and to be able to pay for therapy sessions. And it was there on a Sunday afternoon in no makeup. And I was doing some crazy cable crossover exercise that was very unflattering (laughs) that um, a tall, dark, handsome Navy gent walked up to me and asked me for workout advice. He just decided to ask you? Yeah. He just was like, hey. And the thing is, I thought he was asking me because he was trying to pick me up. But (laughs) He really was asking for workout advice. (laughs) He's really nerdy like that, and I love him. And he became my husband five months later. So very, very fast engagement. And again, far too much for me to probably tell you in this one little hour podcast. Um, Read my book. There you go. (laughs) Um, Yeah, absolutely. So you come from this huge ball of shame, as you're describing, from the divorce to then go so quickly into another marriage. What enabled you to do that with such confidence? I don't think it was confidence. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What was it? It certainly wasn't. I mean, to be honest, I was not, I was still not in a strong place at that time. As much as I had done a lot of work and felt like I had really found a lot more firm footing um, and realized a lot about myself, my relationship with God was still really new and fresh. And I was really craving security and just trying to find, you know, something to help heal my heart and heal my family's heart too. So the thing about Ari is that when we started talking, and I don't even mean dating, but like the first few times we talked, I just knew there was something about him and dating never even crossed my mind. But then we found ourselves one night having a date and I just immediately laid all my baggage out on the table. Like literally, I just said, hey, I want you to know that I've just gone through this really crazy natural disaster that we've had in our community and my brother's been in this really life-altering accident and I've just gone through a divorce. So I'm not really in a place to have a relationship. And he, he didn't even flinch. 
like I thought for sure that he would excuse himself from the table for a Navy emergency, but did not. (laughs) (laughs) The Navy needs me. I'm gone. (laughs) The helicopter outside. But he didn't. He didn't flinch. He just looked at me and he said, okay, great. You know, this is, this is where I am. And he told me about his family challenges and he had actually just broken up with a long-term girlfriend too. And he didn't judge me. And that was actually the first time that that had happened in a long time. And he made me feel like it was okay to be me with my flaws, not despite them. In retrospect, that is one of the things that drew me to him was that absence of shame that I felt with him. And then he started coming over for dinner too, which if you ever go to my house, dinners are a big thing, family dinners around the table. And my sweet mom, she had actually stopped cooking and during this tragedy time in our lives, she just kind of lost her joy for it. But then Ari started coming over, this hungry Navy guy, and she started to liven up a bit. And the takeout containers got replaced with real food on the table again as he came and had conversation with my family and asked my dad about his past as a flight surgeon because Ari was a flight surgeon too. He was there training with the Navy to be a flight surgeon, so they had a great connection. And the other thing about Ari, which is a total God thing, it was really miraculous, was my brother actually ended up coming to live with us too, and he was in a wheelchair at the time. So my family would gather for dinner, and my brother would roll up in his wheelchair, and Ari was completely unafraid of asking my brother how he was doing. None of us in my family, my mom, my dad, or myself, we all felt this fear about talking to my brother about what happened. We didn't know how to talk to him or what to ask him. But Ari knew from his work as a physician that patients who are in life-threatening situations or patients who have some disease or ailment, they want you to talk about it. They don't want to feel ignored or that their sickness is ignored because it makes them feel ignored. So he wouldn't be afraid of it. He would acknowledge it and say, hey, you know, how are you doing today? How are your knees doing? How's your back feeling? And it was shortly after that, actually, in my brother's rehab that he began to walk again. And they said he couldn't, right? These like top spinal surgeons in Colorado who do this all the time said it was a, like a 1.1% chance that my brother would ever walk again. And he proved the doctors wrong. And there he was taking steps and Yeah, there was just something in me during that time. I think that's why part of why it happened so fast was the presence of hope came back into my house, along with Ari being there. That's beautiful. Yeah, it was really amazing. I'm just so grateful. So, okay, so you get married to your Navy gent. What happens? Yes, I get married to my Navy gent, and he was being restationed at a place called Point Magoo, Point Wainimi, actually, in Ventura, California. So I had to make the very quick decision whether or not I was going to leave with him and, you know, get married and move across the country and leave everything I had there um, or stay. And so I decided to take a big leap of faith and a big risk. And I went with him. We got married in Las Vegas on the way there. <laughs> which <laughs> For someone who runs a magazine about weddings, that's kind of ironic, right? I know. And again, a whole other story, but it was wonderful and it was perfect for us. And on the way there though, like I said before, I had caught the wedding bug and I had actually started a little event planning company in my hometown around the same time I had taken a job as a trainer at the little gym. Just really fell in love with it. And I just fell in love, like I said before too, with the idea of creating celebrations that could change people. I saw it happen right before my eyes. 
And so I had in the car on the way from like Las Vegas through Henderson, Nevada to California, a copy of Grace Ormond Wedding Style. And Grace Ormond, I don't know if they still have this, but they had in the back of the time a directory of some of the top wedding professionals in Los Angeles. And I remember circling all the people in the back of the magazine that I really wanted to work for. And I just thought, you know, what do I have to lose here? I have lost almost everything. I've taken this huge leap of faith. I've married this guy I've only known for five months. What do I have to lose in applying for jobs with them or writing them? (laughs) Yeah. When you put it that way, what do you have to lose? And so I did. And at the time I had a Blackberry, you know, the flashing red light. (laughs) Oh God, that light. It's like a tether. I would stare at the phone waiting for it to blink. Oh, it's terrible. I don't miss that thing. But I remember being on my Blackberry and emailing um, all these people and just telling them a little bit about my background, what I had been through and about my passion for creating these, you know, life-changing celebrations. And lo and behold, they all emailed me back and offered me jobs. All of them. What do you think was the key to your success with that? I don't know. You know, I, I, I certainly can't say that in a way that, you know, every time you ask for something, you're going to get it. That's not true. But I really feel like this was God's way of saying, this is your green light. You have to ask for things in life if you want to get them. I put myself up there authentically, too. Like, I wasn't trying to tell them that I was something that I wasn't. I really told them where I was. And I think that they saw that passion and that fervor in me. So I ended up working for Mark's Garden, who was a big celebrity florist in Los Angeles, and um, Mindy Weiss, and Corden and Company. And this just blew my mind. Again, this is way back before a blog started. I think Style Me Pretty had just started around this time. I remember going in to set up a wedding, and they had installed magnolia trees all around the dance floor, which is, I hate to say it, it's pretty common nowadays now in Los Angeles. But at the time, I was just, my mind was blown. I couldn't believe that you could do things like that with flowers and trees and, you know, lighting and sound. And it just really stoked my creative passion. And I thought to myself, people in my little town of Pensacola, Florida, they need to know about this. They need to know that there's more to weddings than just stuffed chicken and tools. So (laughs) I actually Googled, which is funny (laughs) to say too, because Google was not a verb back then. I Googled how to start a blog and I just thought, I'll just try to inspire brides in my little hometown um, about what's going on in Los Angeles. And that's how it started. What year was that? This was 2000 and I think it was 2005 or six. Yeah, really early. Fast forwarding, we're in California and our marriage was a huge challenge. Um, Ari is Jewish. And so his family grew up in a very Orthodox Jewish way. And my family is Christian. My grandfather was a pastor and, you know, sold milk and Bibles door to door back in the day in Alabama. And so from the get go, there was a lot of tension. And I'm saying that very mildly. There's a lot of tension. His family did not approve of us marrying. Which is ironic as your faith is getting so strong. Yeah. And, you know, my faith was growing and that was really like the only thing that I could hold on to. And it was really hard. So I felt like the more I was myself, the more our marriage would fall apart. When we were there and we settled into Los Angeles, I started my job. He started his work with the Navy there. And it was like, we were playing house, you know, and it was for a little while. It was like that honeymoon phase, but that quickly deteriorated. And we started to fight and just, it was like some of the, it, I shouldn't say like, it was 
many of the darkest days of my life, just feeling hopeless and just feeling like, what have I got myself into? What leap did I just take? And so he actually, less than a year into our marriage, came home one day and said that he was given 14 days notice to be deployed to Iraq. And this was at the height of the Iraq war, back in the time when the names of the fallen soldiers were on the screen, like 24-7, very scary time. Yeah, I, obviously I was very scared for him, but he went off to al Takadam, Iraq for eight months, and I ended up leaving my jobs there and moving back in with my parents again. Um, I didn't want to stay in California by myself. And that ended up being a really sweet time, actually, because as much as I missed Ari and I felt this heightened sense of respect and love for him and being away and being deployed in a war, it was also a time of freedom for me. I didn't have the burden of this heavy marriage that we had then experienced in those recent weeks. And I was able to go to church without fear of a fight. I was able to get my hands back into doing event planning, you know, with my little event planning company I'd started. And then there was one night, really late at night, when I was really worried for Ari. I got on my computer and I thought, oh, I really need a project. I need just something to keep my mind occupied. And so I started mocking up a wedding magazine cover. I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could make our own wedding magazine and maybe we could put it in grocery stores or local churches and maybe we could get some of our friends to pretend that they're brides and we'll make bouquets. This was like way back before inspiration shoots. <laughs> the only wedding magazines that were around at the time were the old classics. And I hate to say old because some of them I miss so much, but Modern Bride, you know, which is no longer. Um, we had Brides, Martha Stewart. So there were just the big magazines and there were very few regional magazines. That's where our Southern Wedding started. And it was really me trying to make beauty in a world that felt so heavy at the time and trying to create something that felt hopeful in a time that felt devastating. And a lot of people caught on to that. They needed that as well. I also started um, the Southern Weddings blog at the time too. And that also caught on like wildfire. People were really excited about something new and different for the South. I was using obviously a lot of my inspiration from Los Angeles and it just snowballed and really grew from there. That's amazing. So why do you think it was so successful? Well, I think it was just the fire and the passion that we had. And I don't know, because there's a lot of people listening that have fire and passion for what they're doing, and it didn't catch on like fire. So I'm curious if you could yeah. pinpoint any other factors, maybe first mover in that space as a regional or how you did it with your skills from LA. Just curious. Yeah, sure. Um, well, keep in mind, too, that I was in a really small town. <laughs> and so change was not something that was the norm, you know. So when I say fire and passion, I think that's really what I mean is innovation and being willing to take risks with even back then, like the look of a bridal bouquet, instead of doing your classic white rose bouquet, maybe we'll do green orchids, which sounds so silly nowadays, because there are 8 million risks that have been taken. And we see those all the time. But back then, it was very different. Okay. So is innovating yeah. in the space that you are passionate about that created the separation and the distinction for your brand? Definitely. And it was in a time, too, when information didn't travel so fast. So without the presence of blogs, there was no social media. I think this was 
I don't even remember when Facebook originated. I, I hate to say I don't remember the year, but... Probably 2004. Yeah. So then this would have been at the time when Facebook was still closed only to college students or to those small networks of people. There was really no fast way for information to travel. So for me to bring back this visual inspiration and actual photographs of things that were happening in Los Angeles and posting them on a blog, which was also so strange for people, that was big news. And that really traveled. It was not just, you know, my small town that was interested, but people all over the South and really all over the United States. And it was such an awesome time to, you know, I just have to say, I often think about those early days of blogging and how sweet it was. I think there's great things that are happening in the blog world now too, but man, that time was so good. It was really all about doing it because you loved it, not doing it for clicks, not doing it for an advertiser, you know, which I know these are necessary things in the blogging business now, but blogging was not a business back then. It was just a way to transition. So it was a huge success. Yeah, it was. It was a great success. And thankfully, Ari came back safely from deployment. And we got to start the process of trying to heal our marriage at that time. And I say all of this about our marriage, too, because for anyone that knows me in the magazine now, you know that, like I said before, that marriage is my heart. And it's my heart because of all the challenges that I've been through in my own marriage and because I've seen God redeem my marriage completely. I thought it was totally impossible for anything to change, but it changed. And it wasn't by my own effort. It was all him. Fast forward to he comes back from deployment and the magazine is really picking up steam. We get a contract with a circulation agent, which was a total miracle. And I really felt like I was living the American dream. I was like, yes, everything is going so well. And so we go back to California to finish out his time with the Navy there. He's, he was about to be done in just a few months. And then we were actually going to move to North Carolina, which is where we are now, so that he could start his radiology residency at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I remember so clearly the day we were moving all of our stuff out of our apartment in California to move to North Carolina. And my mom called and she said, Laura, I'm not sure how to tell you this, but there's a letter here. And it is from a really big publisher. And it says that the name of your magazine is too similar to something that they have trademarked. It's a cease and desist letter. Yeah. Well, it wasn't Southern Weddings at the time. It was a different name, which I'm not even allowed to say because I signed the contract. (laughs) Southern Weddings. Yeah. I got a cease and desist letter from a really big publishing house. And I had never gotten a cease and desist letter. I had never even known what one was. And in that same 10 minutes of getting that phone call, I also got a call from a business partner that I had had at the time for my event planning company, which was also picking up steam. And she said, Laura, I knew she was pregnant, but she said, I've been put on bed rest. And so I'm not able to complete any of the weddings, the 25 or whatever weddings that we have on the books. And so I just felt like in the span of 10 minutes, I had just lost everything. (laughs) It's like, here I had all these sponsors that were waiting on this magazine, this amazing blog community of people that was so excited. What in the world was I going to tell them? What was I going to do with all these weddings on the books? And I remember crying on the floor, crying as the movers were taking the desk out from underneath me. And I remember even a mover stepping over me to pick up a lamp. I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. But I do remember Ari saying to me, he's like, Lara, you have to make a decision. Are you going to keep going with this? And I heard in his voice at that time, you know, he didn't want me to have to go through so much anxiety and anguish over these things. But he said, are you going to keep going with this or are you going to take a different path? And I don't know what compelled me to say this. All I can attribute it to is God saying, 
yeah, I'm going to keep going. I had no idea what that meant. I just knew that there was a reason why I was on this path and a reason why I was supposed to be doing this magazine. So I did. I kept going. Long story short, I found a lawyer. We contested it. I lost. I ended up having to pay them a lot of money, which I didn't have. How'd you pay it then? Um, Savings. Ari and I just had to use our savings. Yeah. So that was a really hard time for our marriage with just the circumstances that it existed. And then it just got harder because I was also a financial burden to us and stress burden. And I was just stressed out about this all the time. So that is the climate that we had in our lives when we moved to North Carolina. (laughs) And we moved here, we had an air mattress and um, no cars for three weeks because military moves take forever. And I remember sitting on the air mattress with my laptop and I asked the neighbors if I could borrow their internet because ours wasn't installed yet. I was just trying anything I could do to put things back together. And I got on Craigslist and put up a post to find two interns or just anybody to help me out. And thankfully, I found a couple of really great ladies who ended up working with me for a while to just put things back together. And so we applied for a new trademark on Southern Weddings. And my lawyer assured me that this was going to be a shoe and we were going to get it. And the day that we sat at the press and watched the copies come off the press, I got a phone call from my lawyer. And he said, Laura, I don't know how to tell you this, but the trademark has been rejected. Oh, my God. Yeah. And at that moment, and I knew what I was saying was crazy, but I just said, I don't care what the U.S. government says about the trademark. Contest this. Like, you fix this. And my lawyer later told me that he thought I was crazy at that moment, too. But... (laughs) But he did. He did what I said, and he appealed it. And the magazine finally comes out on newsstands with the title Southern Weddings. However, it was a really bittersweet time. I just kept thinking because of this trademark appeal that we could get sued. By the same company that had had the issues before? No, different. Not having a hold on this name, I was afraid something bad could happen. I was afraid to go get my mail for months after that. I didn't want to get another cease and desist letter from someone that was trying to take everything from me. I think it was about two weeks or something after we'd sold the last box of copies of V1. We call our issues V, um, which means volume, and then whatever the year is. So that was V1. And I got an email from my lawyer, and I had sort of been conditioned to cringe every time I got emails from him because it was always bad news. But this time, thank God, the bad news turned into good, happy tears. And he said, I can't even believe I'm telling you this, but the trademark has been accepted. And that means you're safe. I was safe. Yeah. And at that moment, I, I just flashed back to all that I had been through in leaving theater in getting married and my marriage completely falling apart. My brother's accident, taking that big leap of faith to get married to Ari and all of the hard stuff that we had been through. And that trademark wasn't just a piece of paper to me. It wasn't about the trademark. It was more about perseverance of knowing that sometimes against all odds, God can bring you through things for a reason. And I didn't know the bigger picture until really just recently. So that's the story of Southern Weddings. I have to go back. You just said until recently. What did you learn recently? Well, the next part of the story too is probably the most important part, which is right after getting that trademark acceptance, I felt this fear and I was really operating from a place of fear, which as we all know is not a great thing. But I was afraid that something bad would happen all the time. Even though I had gotten that great positive sign, I just felt like, who knows what's going to happen next, you know? I said yes to everything after that. I said yes to every speaking engagement, every phone call of someone that needed advice, 
every everything. And I ran myself into the ground in order to escape from my marriage, which was still not in a great place. I would escape to work. Found myself working 24-7 at the expense of my marriage and at the expense of my health. I just wasn't sleeping ever. And when I say 24-7, meaning I was answering emails up until 3 o'clock in the morning and then I would wake up with anxiety at like 5 a.m. I was answering emails on Saturday, Sunday, all hours of the day. I had no boundaries. Months into this, I also had no marriage. We ended up sleeping in separate beds. We were really two ships passing in the night. Did he resent? Yeah, he resented my work, but he also, through the pain in our marriage, escaped to his work too and escaped to all kinds of distractions. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm telling you all the heavy stuff, but there is a happy ending to this story. I really believe, like you even reiterated too, that it is our mess that becomes our message. And it is out of our deepest pain that actually our greatest joy comes. Long story short, I just realized that I couldn't keep going like that. Like I had tried everything. I had tried to make it work. I had tried to tried to do my business plus trying to figure out how to fix my marriage at the same time and it wasn't working. So I remember one day out of total desperation, I was driving to Target to buy something I totally didn't need as usual. (laughs) Do you remember the thing you were driving for? Just out of curiosity. (laughs) No. (laughs) Who knows? Probably another V-neck t-shirt that I didn't need. (laughs) I was driving to Target and I had frequently made that drive to get something I didn't need. On that drive, there was a building. It was a church building. And I had often seen people pouring out of that building on Sunday afternoons and Wednesdays and, you know, many other days and just seeing a lot of happy people and families and kind of subconsciously always thought, gosh, I want that. I'll never have that, but I want it. And one day it was like, I was a thirsty animal, like searching for water. I just veered into the parking lot on a Sunday morning. Instead of Target. Instead of Target. (laughs) And I walked into that church building and hoped that nobody would talk to me. And I sat down in the back and sure enough, this gentleman came up to me, this like jolly gentleman. And he said, Hey, my name is Bob. And he sat down next to me and he just started talking to me, which made me feel super uncomfortable. Um, but (laughs) he didn't ask me what I did for a living. He didn't ask me how many followers I had on social media. He didn't care about any of that stuff. He really cared about my soul. And I knew it from the questions he was asking me. He wasn't like trying to like win me over to the church. He was really trying to just love on me. And he introduced me to another lady named Jan, who also came and sat down next to me. And it was the same thing. And it's like, here I was in this, I had never been in an atmosphere like this, of seeing people really, like we say here in the South, loving on each other. It was a big, diverse group of people. I mean, young, old, rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, just this amazing Southern family. And that made a huge impression on me to see people over time, and I, you know, I went back a few times after that too, but I started to notice like these people were actually sharing their lives with each other. These people weren't trying to be perfect. They were really helping each other, physically helping each other with things, not just saying it. We're not just saying, hey, I'll pray for you. They were actually doing something about it. So I went back after that first time for a marriage class. Did you go alone or did you go with him? By myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was by myself and I was terrified, but again, I just knew something had to change. I walked in and there's all these couples there and me and all these couples, the teacher's name was Mitch and all these couples started sharing their marriage challenges, but it was so different than anything I had envisioned. They were holding hands. They were sharing their struggles with each other with that person sitting right there in such a respectful, loving way, but in a really honest way. I don't know. This kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, I've never been exposed to this before. 
something in me thought, maybe, maybe I should share my struggles too. And then there was that other something on my other shoulder that was saying, no, don't share. They will judge you. But I did. I stood up, took a leap of faith, and I said, hi, my name is Laura, and I'm really inspired by all the things that you guys are saying. However, my husband does not believe in God, and our marriage is falling apart, and I don't know what to do. And I just laid it out there. And I remember Mitch looking at me dead in the eyes, and I will never forget this. He smiled at me, which I was not expecting. And he said, Laura, the impossible is possible with God. All the other people in the room, they smiled at me too, which to me at the, at the moment, like in the split second, felt very strange. I was like, what in the world? I just told them all this bad stuff. Why are they <laughs> smiling at me? It's because they knew something I didn't at the time, that the impossible is possible. Yeah, I mean, if I were to sum it up in a nutshell, the impossible happened over a long period of time, like through so much stuff, God healed our marriage and brought it all back together. And Ari actually became a believer about two years ago, right around the time that Grace was born. And I hate to like wrap it up in a bow like that, but that's really what happened. It wasn't by any effort of mine. It was all all through surrender, um, through surrendering my fears and taking big leaps of faith in order to live on purpose and saying no to the things that didn't matter, like my cell phone and my work in order to say yes, like a huge giant neon flashing yes to the things that do matter. And surrendering can feel, oh man, it feels, it still does when it happens to me. It feels painful because it's a little death. That's what surrender is. And so for me, it was having to die a million little deaths, and I still do every day, to die to myself in order to live for what matters. And that is, you know, like I said, the happy ending to the story is that that's the path that we're on now. That's amazing. So did he just see you modeling this behavior and eventually he got interested? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. But for instance, when we would fight, which was often about, you know, various things, but a lot of the time it was fighting about faith-related things since that's really what divided our marriage for so long. So for instance, I would come home from church back in those days and he would argue with me about whatever. And I just like had to stop finally in those arguments and say, God, this is not working. Like me giving him logical reasons about stuff or anything is just not working. What do you want me to say in these arguments? And I heard God say to me in my mind, just, just say, I love you. I was like, okay. So that's what I did is we would argue and I would look at Ari and I would just say, I love you. And that was fuel to Ari's fire. He hated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not really him. It's the ego. I always say the, that part that tells you those things, the part you call God, I call intuition. And everyone has those two voices, the ego and the intuition, or in this case, God as the intuition. But yeah, that ego hates that when it hears something that's not another ego thing to fight against. Yeah, and he was just, I don't know. I think what it was is that it was so foreign. He was like, I don't understand. Like, I, I don't think he actually thought this, but this is like really subconsciously what was happening. And I think has happened in my own life too, is when we're faced with that much grace and that much like buckets and buckets of love, it's so overwhelming that we cannot process it. We just can't understand why somebody would actually love us in our mess. And that's what happened with Ari is he couldn't understand why in the world, how could I really be honest in saying that I loved him in this mess that we were in? 
but I did. I genuinely did. So I think after about 30 I love yous, he started to get it that I was, I was changing in some way. And he started to wonder what in the world is changing my wife in this way. I've talked to a lot of women who've been in similar situations too. And the thing that I hear most often, if you know, they are someone that really wants to have a stronger relationship with God and really live on purpose, and their husband may not be, is they fear that they may be so different that their husband won't, I don't know, will, it'll push them away. And I had the exact same fear. I just felt like, oh, I, I can't like be so different. I can't like be this woman that God wants me to be or else Ari's not going to love me anymore. But now I know the truth, which is that knowing God and loving God makes you into a better wife. It makes you into a better friend, a better sister, everything, because you start to learn about grace and love and truth and honesty. And those qualities are magnetic and they're not from us. They're only from him. And that's what happened with Ari is he started to feel that need of, I need that in my life. Just like I had seen in people working with Ray as a trainer, there was just that something. I was like, what in the world is making him tick? And I think that started the heart change for him. That's beautiful. And I want to say for anyone listening that does not have the same faith, I don't personally believe that we have to have a Christian faith-based God in our lives to have similar universal truths exposed to ourselves and to learn similar lessons. So for anyone out there, it may not come from that path for you, but I do believe the universal truths that are shared that you've been describing are completely true and universal. And the beautiful thing is we can find it from anywhere that works for us. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to share that for anyone that's that's not specifically Christian. Um, so what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? I would say if I could give myself advice even 15 years ago, even five years ago, I would say do what matters. And to me, that's following God and do the hard thing. And the hard thing for me has always been surrendering of control just dying those little deaths every day and choosing to put someone else's needs above our, our own, you know, choosing to make less of ourselves and more of him, which is so hard in a world that really just kind of sings to us all day long that we need to be bigger and, you know, make more of us. So yeah, that was a lot of things, but <laughs> I don't think I can pick one thing, but yeah, I would say do what matters and forget the rest. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lara, and sharing so beautifully. That was my pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you for going into the depths. I really deeply appreciate that. Oh, well, it was, it's easy with you. I feel like you have a really great way with people. So thank you so much for allowing me to. It was a joy. And there you have it. Thank you, Lara, so much for coming on the show and sharing so openly. And thank you for listening. If you would like to send Lara a message, her handle on Twitter is... Lara Casey, L-A-R-A-C-A-S-E-Y. Thank you guys so much, and I'll see you next week. 